We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Online. A number of years ago, a British periodical conducted a survey asking respondents to name the best religious joke of the 20th century, and there was a runaway winner. Are you curious? It was a bit by the comedian Emo Phillips, and if you know who he is, you're already prepared for some off-base. Uh, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump, I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist, Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist, Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. Now, this is the way some of us feel about doctrine in general and about creeds and faith statements in particular. They're just divisive. What good are they? What does it matter anyway? Some of you may have grown up in a church that never said creeds. In fact, many Protestant churches have a history of actively ignoring creeds. There's a beautiful old Presbyterian hymn called, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. The first verse is, My faith has found a resting place from guilt, my soul is free. And then the chorus reads, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You get the idea. Interestingly, Somewhere along the way, when that hymn got transferred to an old Baptist hymnal, the first verse was rewritten to this. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. 
I trust the ever-living one whose wounds for me did bleed. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Obviously, there is an anti-creed sentiment going on. Well, this is our fourth week in a series we're calling Navigating Faith, and we're using the Nicene Creed as our guide. Now, practically and doctrinally, we don't build our lives on this creed. We build our lives on the Bible. So why use the Nicene Creed at all? Well, first of all, this creed is soaked in the Bible. It's an economical restatement by 4th century church leaders of the essential doctrines of the Bible related to God, related to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, related to the church and related to eternity. Plus, it's a helpful doctrinal plumb line. It's, it's the standard declaration of faith for Christians for 17 centuries. So today, we look at the fourth stanza of the creed. Let's read it together. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. All right, let's break that section down and examine it phrase by phrase. First, he, meaning Jesus, ascended to the heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Remember, both this statement and the Bible come from a world of monarchies. This was a time when kings ruled the world. There was no separation of powers. What the king said is what happened. And the world of monarchies had certain accompanying images, thrones, crowns, sitting at the right hand, among others. The, the right hand was the place of highest honor and greatest influence. Uh, now, we can't allow ourselves to be limited by the human analogy here. Just as we suggested a couple of weeks ago, the father and son relationship was limited. This, this right hand relationship is not mean, meant to suggest that Jesus is, is like a first assistant to God the Father. This is something different. It's the biblical authors and the creed authors' best effort at putting Jesus at the very center of the action of the whole universe. So let's check out three short biblical descriptions of this event that's being talked about. First, let's hear Mark's description in Mark 16, 9. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Dr. Luke also concludes his biography with an account of this incident. He says in Luke 24, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they, can, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And then Acts records the incident as well. Acts 1, 9 through 11. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, what in the world does all that mean and why did it happen? Well, honestly, we don't know for sure. I mean, this is pretty remarkable and frankly, pretty weird stuff. It's mind boggling, but the implications of it are profound. Pastor Tim Keller offers two suggestions that are worth our consideration. And we get one more suggestion directly from the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, first of all, Keller's first suggestion is that we think of this like a coronation. Jesus was taking his place at the head of humanity. Keller explains it like this. Now, if Jesus merely wanted to return to the Father, he could have just vanished. There were other times when he, when he did vanish, immediately out of sight as with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. But instead, at the ascension, Jesus literally rises up into the clouds and disappears into the distance of heaven. Why did he do it that way? We can only speculate, but it may have been for a coronation ceremony. This makes me think of Paul's sentiment in Ephesians 1. Check it out. 
The ascension establishes Jesus as the reigning king over all other authorities. The second suggestion Keller offers is more practical. The ascension is literally when and how Jesus left the limitations of time and space. Think about it. When he was incarnate, he was limited to one place at one time. But now, as Keller put it, he has been so glorified that everything he does has a cosmic scope. Any time-space limitation passes away. And then we get another important implication of this event from the book of Hebrews. According to Hebrews, this event ensures that we are all now well represented in the throne room of heaven. Listen to the, to the Hebrews explanation. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, and this is a pretty literal description of the ascension from their point of view. They didn't know the language of atmosphere. Uh, they called what surrounded us the heavens. Uh, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. In other words, it's worth doing what we're doing in this series, the author reminds us. It's worth examining and clinging to our beliefs. Then he continues, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The ascension was like a coronation event. It was literally how Jesus left the confines of time and space, and because of it, we know that we have the perfect representation in the highest court in the universe. Some of you may be familiar with the message. It's a, it's a transliteration of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. I love what Peterson said about the Ascension. He said, Ascension Day is the perfect church holiday because the world can't steal it. The culture around us has quite ruined Christmas and Easter. Of course, the world owned Christmas as its festival for the restoration of the sun before the early Christians used it to disguise their celebration of Christ's birth. But, he goes on, the world has now stolen it for its consumeristic purposes and has seized Easter for the same idolatry. But the, the, the world hasn't got the foggiest notion what to do with someone literally flying out of here. The second phrase in the creed is, uh, in this stanza is equally monumental. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Listen, I keep saying this, but the overall implications here are awesome, really. If this is true, and I'm certain it is, then history doesn't repeat itself. We're not in a loop. Of course, there are typical human habits and tendencies, and because of that, there are patterns and tendencies with organizations and civilizations that, that humans create. But overall, this is not a play and repeat exercise. History is going in a straight line toward a very definite destination. And that destination point, at it, there will be an assessment, a judgment. And our destiny depends on what happens at that judgment. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Jesus talked about this repeatedly with his followers. At times he touched on the topic with gentleness. Like in John 14, 3, he says of himself, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. But at other times, he takes the gloves off in his description. Like in Matthew 24, 27, Jesus tells his students, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He repeats a similar sentiment in a similar lesson in Mark 13, 26. He says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with, with great power and glory. 
This teaching comes near the end of Jesus' life, and he very rarely sounded even remotely like this, especially in reference to himself. It's as if he's saying, look, while I've been with you, I've really been camouflaged this time. I wanted to serve you and show you the heart of God, my heart, but I'm going to come back, and when I do, it will not be fun and games. It will be shock and awe. When he comes again, Jesus will not be wrapped in a servant's towel. He will display his full glory, and he will sit at the judge's table. He told his students on another occasion, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. This theme obviously made a profound impression on the apostles. Listen to how Peter included it in one of his first sermons. He said, He commanded us to preach to people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. By the way, if you'd like to know what they mean by judging living and dead, check out uh, the Q&A videos on mygateway.life next week. Anyway, so what's the whole What's the, what's the whole idea? What's the judgment idea? What is that? I mean, Jesus seems like an incredibly loving guy, usually pretty chill. He, I mean, he taught us that the main thing was to love God and love others. So why the judgment thing? What's the deal? Are people literally going to be judged and dismissed from God's presence for eternity? What? I suspect that the great theologian and actress Jessica Alba speaks for many of us. In December 2015, it was a Uh, article in Vanity Fair magazine on the actress in which she laid out some of her doctrinal thoughts. According to the article, article, uh, Alba's childhood was marked by two things, severe illnesses and a burning desire to leave a mark on the world. And for her, that meant becoming a devout, born-again Christian at the age of 12. She says this, I was seeking a purpose. I, I wanted to exist for a reason. This lasted until she was 17 when she says she was turned off by this whole judgment idea. That year, she attended an acting workshop in Vermont and fell crazy in love with uh, someone whose out-of-the-box lifestyle she felt would bring them under God's judgment. She said this, I was like, there's just no way he's going to hell. Evidently, acting had opened her up to a whole new world of creative people and a community where she belonged. I felt like at the end of the day, Alba said, God is love and everyone is human and that's all that matters. But we get her struggle, right? So what's the deal with the judgment? Now, now if you struggle with this idea, let me give you four things to think about that may help. First of all, let's recognize that God might not be as judging as God's people sometimes are. Secondly, I have a challenge for you. I bet you don't have as much of a problem with judgment as you think you do. Not really. Here's what I mean. How do you feel when you watch one of those movies about a truly evil person? I bet bet there's something in you that longs for them to get it. I watched a documentary recently about a man who systematically mistreated children, badly. There was nothing redeeming in his character or in his story, and I distinctly felt two things. I wanted to rescue those kids, and I wanted to punish that guy. Justice demands judgment. Thirdly, ask yourself how much sin you think it would be wise for God to let into his presence. If you're following these lessons over these weeks, then you may remember that last week we talked about the offness of everything, the the dissonance in our heart, the damage we cause in our relationships, the greed, the, the, the anger, the pride that we feel, the offness. What would, what would the acceptable level of offness be for God to allow into the realm of eternal life? He is perfectly morally pure. 
Everything in his presence reflects that and comprehends it. So should God allow 5% sin or maybe maybe 0.5% or or would 0.05% be okay? The answer to that question has to be zero. When Olympic athletes are tested for performance-enhancing drugs, they fail the blood test if they have even a trace of these drugs. Their blood is either clean or not clean. The standard for passing is 0% banned substances. They can't protest, but I only have traces of the banned substances, so obviously I don't use them much. There are athletes who use them far more than I do. The standard is perfection. Could God be God if his standard was less than this? Finally, what about forgiveness, you may be thinking? Can't he just forgive? At a certain point anyway, eternally? I want you to consider the best answer. The best answer I've ever heard to this question. It was given by a middle school pastor. He said that the punishment of any crime should not only suit the crime, but should also match the recipient. Listen to his explanation. Suppose a middle school student punches another student in class. What happens? The student's given detention. Suppose during the detention, the boy punches the teacher. What happens? The student gets suspended for a time. Suppose on the way home, the boy punches a policeman on the nose. What happens? He might find himself in jail. Suppose some years later, the very same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the President of the United States. As the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the President. What happens? He's shot dead by Secret Service. In every case, the crime is precisely the same, but the severity of the crime is measured by the one against whom it is committed. So what comes from sinning against God? His answer? Everlasting destruction. The Bible agrees. Now for us, That means that we are in a pretty hopeless situation, right? I mean, we admitted last week that there is an offness about everything. And in fact, the real center of the offness is us, our reactions, our tendencies, our habits, our secret actions. We've got a problem. Of course, there's a remedy to this situation. Again, it's the same one we covered last week. Jesus is the key to our connection with God. Jesus is the key to our eternal destiny. He is the remedy. We we have to affirm who Jesus is and the nature of God. We have to acknowledge our offness. The problem is us. And we have to accept his death on our behalf. Then, when Jesus comes again with glory to judge the living and the dead, we will not bring our resume to that judgment. We'll bring his. The final phrase in this stanza is, his kingdom will never end. The authors of the creed must have been thinking how about how Peter described Jesus' future kingdom as, listen to this, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, think of the revolution that must have happened in Peter for him to say that. Think of what he had, had had to have experienced. I mean, he saw Jesus die, and yet he tells his students that Jesus' reign is eternal. The author of Hebrews says this, But what about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. In other words, Jesus is going to be the ruler of everything for all time. My wife Diane hates when things end. I hear it every time someone moves or something significant changes or one of our children makes some adjustment to their lives. Often, even if what happened was a good thing, Diane will feel a certain sadness because things have changed. Things aren't supposed to end, she always says. I usually hug her and smile and think to myself, this woman is awesome and a little bit crazy. But what if she's right? What if things aren't supposed to end? What if endings are part of the offness? This is what the creed seems to be saying, right? 
And this is what the, the Bible affirms everywhere. Don't you love the way Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes? In chapter 3, he begins to riff on the meaning of life, and Solomon says this, There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. He goes on like this for several more verses and then he wraps up. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has set eternity in the human heart. Many years ago, I spent a summer in Brazil. I was a young man and it was a great adventure. And while I was there, I learned a Portuguese word, only one, I think, that missionaries kept telling me it was hard to translate exactly into English, but it was really important in understanding the Brazilian culture. It's saudade. I looked it up the other night. Google said this, a feeling of longing, melancholy, or nostalgia that is characteristic of Brazilian temperament. They're right, aren't they? We all have saudade. We long for eternity. Look, currently we live in a physical world, and our world is defined by physical laws, the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity, for example. But what is less observable, but no less obvious once we recognize it, is that our larger reality is defined by spiritual laws as well. Let's call one of them the law of separation, meaning the spiritual dimension is completely separate from the physical dimension. Let's call another spiritual law, the law of sin and death. The Apostle Paul actually uses that term in Romans 8. In other words, when we sin, we experience death and separation. These spiritual laws are as real and as pervasive as the physical ones. In other words, anywhere you go in the universe, bodies will be attracted to one another. They, 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 mass attracts mass. We call it gravity. So if I drop this pen, the small mass of this pen will be drawn inevitably toward the huge mass of the earth and it will, we call it, fall. In other words, the law of gravity. Anywhere you go in the universe, in the same way, anytime sin is present, present, separation and death are the consequence. But the creed tells us that a time is coming outside of time when all of those laws will be combined in new ways, when spirit will be reunited with physical, when sin, which is acknowledged and subsumed in Jesus' death, will be eliminated, when saudade will be satisfied. In that day, Jesus' rule will be fully manifested, fully revealed and unending. The ongoingness that we long for will be a reality. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. This is what we believe. Let me end this morning with a personal story. A number of years ago, I went to a blockbuster to rent a movie. Now, for those of you under 21, in the old days, movies used to be stored on these thin discs, silver magical things. We called them DVDs. And we had giant machines in our, our homes attached to our huge 32-inch TVs that would play these discs. It was a truly wonderful experience. But there was some hassle to it. Uh, to get these magical discs, you had to drive like a mile and a half to go to your local DVD store called a Blockbuster. You had to rent the DVD from this Blockbuster and drive it back home. What about Netflix, you're wondering? Prepare yourself. It didn't even exist. Anyway, someone recommended to me a movie called Little Buddha, starring a very young Keanu Reeves. 
it was supposed to be somewhat biopic about the Buddha. So I go to Blockbuster, I grab the movie, go to the counter to rent it from your typical Blockbuster rental person. It was a young man with orange hair who was multi-pierced. He took my movie and said, cool movie, man. I didn't want to miss this opportunity. So I said, well, why do you say that? Oh, it's deeply spiritual, man. He said with hushed orange hair reverence. I couldn't pass this up. So I said, what do you mean deeply spiritual? Well, obviously, I unleashed the theologian in him, so he began to wax poetic about spirituality. Oh, I see spirituality like a large cafeteria line. It's loaded with good, nourishing food. Some people ignore the line, but they do so at their own detriment. He was getting warmed up. But if you choose to go through the line, then you inspect the delightful offerings and you pick the one that works for you. It's all nourishing, but you get whatever would most satisfy you, and then you enjoy. So, I said, it's all the same, really, but the important thing is to pick the one that works for you. Yes, says Orange Hair, and you have to be sincere about it. If you're not sincere, it won't really be nourishing. But if you're sincere, then you do what works for you, man, and, and we'll all be the better for it. So in terms of spirituality, I say it doesn't matter what you believe. It just has to really work for you, and you have to be sincere. Yes, says Mr. Blockbuster. So I said, well, what about Hitler? Was he sincere? Do you think whatever spirituality he was practicing worked for him, or did he just ignore the line altogether? At that point, Mr. Blockbuster got this wide-eyed look. I could tell that he could see where this was going. So he said, well, it, ha it has to be good for humanity, he added. So, says I, it has to work for you. You have to be sincere, and it has to be good for humanity. Otherwise, it's all good. Yes, he says, so who gets to decide? If it's all good for humanity, who gets to decide? I wonder if Hitler thought what he was doing was good for humanity. I wonder if there are others who would have agreed. Well, what do you mean, Mr. Blockbuster asked. Uh, then I said, listen, you should know that I'm a Christian. I believe in God, and I believe it does matter very much what you believe. I think the specifics matter very much. Here's why. God might not exist, or I might be totally wrong about what God is like, but if God exists then he or she is what he or she is. We don't get to make up what they are. They are what they are. And that means you can be sincerely right about God and you can be sincerely wrong. In other words, if I'm in that cafeteria line, it matters very much what food I pick up because some of it is real and nourishing and others parts of, other parts of it are fake and not ultimately nourishing. I've had several conversations exactly like that one over the years. I remember this one, I think, because someone in the line behind me at Blockbuster clapped when I finished, which is always a bonus. Here's the point. This stuff matters a great deal. As it turns out, believing or not believing this stuff is the difference between connection and separation for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we believe in you, creator of all things visible and invisible. We believe in the Son, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, who came for us in our salvation. And he's coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Spirit, we affirm you today. We acknowledge our offness and we accept 
what Jesus did on our behalf. God, we pray that you will break open our chests and massage this truth into our lives, make it real. Uh, Give us rumors this week of your presence, of your reality, of, of what this stuff really means for us. We give ourselves to you fresh and anew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.